the FT. Hello. August never seems to be a quiet time for Amazon's Jeff Bezos. In 2013, Bezos bought the Washington Post for $250 million. A year later, Amazon paid nearly $1 billion for gaming platform Twitch. And this year, Bezos' August has been busy for the wrong reasons. A hard-hitting piece of investigative journalism from the New York Times about the work culture at Amazon. I'm Henry Mance and this is Best of the Financial Times podcast. On this week's show, we'll be looking at the allegations against Amazon and whether office workers in rich countries should really be complaining about their conditions. We'll also be looking at why BuzzFeed is worth as much as The Economist and the latest news from Ukraine where violence has been simmering again. First, Amazon. Here's a recap of some of the allegations made by The New York Times from our San Francisco correspondent, Hannah Kushler. And it described this high-pressure atmosphere with staff forced to work long hours, often found weeping at their desks, and managed by a system which tries to push out underperformers each year. This is a system that Amazon has since denied. It also detailed some specific stories from former Amazon employees about the company being insensitive when employees are dealing with family or health issues. For example, one employee being told she needed to focus more on her work just after she'd had a stillbirth. Amazon is famous for saying no comment, but it didn't keep so calm this time. Jeff Bezos, the chief executive, wrote to all the staff saying that he didn't recognise the Amazon being portrayed in the New York Times article. But he said, read it. And he said, email him or HR if you've seen examples like this, which was perhaps unusual. But lots of reputation management people say it's, it's probably the right thing to do because you can't ignore an article like this. I mean, he even said that people would be crazy to stay if Amazon was really like that and that he would certainly leave. Will any of this actually affect Amazon? Investors didn't seem to mind. Amazon shares actually rose after the article was published. Here's Hannah Kushler again. Amazon is used to criticism, right? This is not the first time. Amazon often gets into battles, whether it's about its role in driving down prices and how that's hit small independent bookstores or its negotiations with publishers. It's also not even the first time it's been criticised for how it treats its workforce. The FT's Sarah O'Connor did a magazine piece a couple of years ago that looked at the conditions in Amazon warehouses, where staff are often on temporary contracts and have their every move tracked by handheld computers. But while I don't think that it'll have a great impact on Amazon's relationship with its customers, who value it for being cheap and efficient, it could potentially put off some talented employees from applying for jobs there. Sarah O'Connor, the FT's employment correspondent, joins me now. Sarah, how concerned should we be about the work culture at Amazon? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we've known for a long time that Amazon has a very tough work culture for its blue-collar workers. So Amazon, remember, isn't really a tech company in the way that Facebook is. It actually is a massive retail and logistics operation. So it has thousands of very large warehouses and hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers who work for not very much money. Often they're on temporary contracts. Their movements are tracked in real time and their productivity is constantly measured and watched by their managers. So we've known through a series of articles over several years that Amazon does kind of drive its workers very hard at the bottom end of its organisation. I suppose we knew less about the fact that that culture extended all the way to the top. Although personally, it wasn't a huge surprise. I remember Jeff Bezos saying in an interview a few years ago, our culture is friendly and intense, but if push comes to shove, we'll settle for intense. And and I guess there might be more concern about people at the bottom of the ladder because at the top of the ladder, these people are talented, they're well-educated, they can go somewhere else. So really, should we be worried about uh, workers who choose to work at Amazon and then may choose to move on a year later? 
Yeah, so the Financial Times made this argument in its leader comment this week. It said nobody's forcing these people to work there. And I think that that is a fair point. That doesn't mean that it's some of the allegations against Amazon, which, of course, they've denied, things about uh, discriminating against employees who have had health difficulties. Obviously, that's not okay in any workplace. But the sort of the general point about this very intense competitive culture Yeah, I mean, no one is forcing these people to work there. And maybe the bigger question we have to ask is, why does anyone want to put themselves through that sort of system when actually there are plenty of other ways to make a reasonable amount of money if you are a talented person? And of course, there was this expectation that maybe we'd have a five day weekend because we would have reached a level of prosperity by the 21st century, which didn't require us to go out and put bread on the table. That hasn't happened. Yeah, exactly. John Maynard Keynes said very famously that by 2030, we'd all work three day weeks because we just didn't need to work any more than that. I think what he forgot about is human nature and the the nature of wanting to keep up with the Joneses. It's very easy to think you could just sit around. But actually, when everyone else is getting richer and richer, it's much harder to do. And when you look at these tech companies in particular, there are huge gains to be made from rising to that top 1% of talent. So perhaps for very competitive people, they just gravitate to workplaces like this. And you get the huge salary. And I guess there's one slight disconnect that listeners might have, which is that sometimes we hear about Virgin Group or about Netflix have these extended benefits because we want to take the best talent. And then we hear about work cultures where at least the day-to-day interactions are very competitive, almost nasty. Are there sort of two processes going on? One is sort of extending these formal benefits and making sure that people can have a family life. And the other is actually allowing the very competitive people to come together and have the sort of the fight to get to the top. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a sort of contrast between the way a lot of employment policies are moving, which is towards much friendlier places where you can have free orange juice and you can sit on a beanbag and you can take 12 months of paternity leave if you want to. And the sort of inherent competitive culture in a lot of these high performing workplaces. So there have been lots of surveys in the UK where we have lots of flexible working laws that show that actually a lot of employees just simply don't take up those rights, even though they exist, presumably because they worry that they'll slip further down the pecking order. Great. Sarah, thanks very much. And the good news is we'll soon all be replaced by robots anyway. If you still haven't had enough of white-collar woes, here's our management columnist Lucy Calloway detailing the nightmare of submitting her expense claim via an online portal run by Oracle. There are four pages to be completed. Whenever I tried to move to the next page, it informed me I'd not done the previous one correctly. When you finally submit the form, you still aren't done. You have to print out the report, photocopy all receipts, then work out how to scan them all together and email them to some poor person who's paid to process them. The new system is so painful, one can only conclude it was deliberately designed that way. Now that all software is user-friendly, it must have taken very special coding from the clever people at Oracle to make something quite so unfriendly. It's not hard to see why companies are so happy with the result. The more difficult it is to claim, the lower the expenses bill. Yet that ignores the opportunity cost, the hours we all waste faffing around as I did last week. It also ignores the stress caused. Just think of the money that has to be spent on those wellness programmes that help employees de-stress. Surely it'd be better not to wind people up in the first place. Well said, Lucy. Well said. Now, in happier news for office workers, BuzzFeed, the viral news site, has been valued at $1.5 billion by an investment from NBC Universal. 
That's roughly the same valuation as The Economist Group, publisher of The Economist magazine, which is much more profitable and, let's be honest, much more prestigious. Meanwhile, another new site, Vox, is now valued at $1.3 billion, or roughly the same as The Financial Times was sold for last month. The FT's Cardiff Garcia spoke to our US media correspondent, Shannon Bond, about the deals and tried to conceal his amazement. The Economist and the FT have been around since the 19th century. Vox and BuzzFeed were founded, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, this is kind of incredible, right. right? Yeah, no, it is kind of incredible. It's interesting. I mean, it's essentially, you know, this is the brave new world of, feels almost really outdated to call this stuff digital media. I mean, we're all supposed to be digital media now. But these groups are really being viewed quite differently than traditional media companies. I mean, we're not looking, if you're actually looking at, you know, revenue and profit, you know, they we're talking about multiples that are wildly different. By the way, here are BuzzFeed's recent financial results, courtesy of a leak to gossip website Gawker. In 2013, they made $7 million in profit on $64 million in revenue. And in the first six months of 2014, they were already at nearly $3 million in profit on $46 million in revenue. So it's that kind of trajectory, I think, that's really supporting the valuations that we've seen. BuzzFeed's revenue doesn't come from selling advertising spots next to its articles. It comes from sponsored content such as Are You a Visual Thinker? sponsored by GE. It's using that money to help build a serious news brand. Something that's, that's been increasingly obvious in the case of BuzzFeed is that throughout the last few years, they've been getting very, very serious about hiring not just serious journalists, but big name journalists, yeah. people that are well known in traditional media circles and people that we know are going to do good work. In other words, trusted journalists. I mean, it seems like there's no slowing them down in that regard. I mean, I think they're worth taking seriously. Yeah, no, and they're spending a lot of money on that, too. I mean, in the first half of last year, their editorial budget was at, you know, 10 and a half million, you know, just a few years before it was under a million. So that that shows you, I mean, they're hiring um, they're hiring incredible people. They're hiring people who are doing really good work and doing actually, you know, hard-hitting reporting, which then exists alongside sort of the cat videos that everyone jokes about and alongside advertiser content in a way that is pretty different than what this you think about. This podcast has been brought to you by BuzzFeed. Full disclosure, this podcast has not been brought to you by BuzzFeed. Finally, Ukraine. In recent weeks, the country has taken a backseat to Europe's other problems. First the Greek crisis, and now the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean. But it hasn't gone away. Here's Neil Buckley, our Eastern Europe editor, on recent events. Well, there's been a significant upsurge in violence over the past 8 to 10 days. It's calmed actually a little just in the last 24, 48 hours. But there's a lot of nervousness that it could increase again very quickly, particularly towards August the 24th, which is Ukraine's Independence Day, which is also the anniversary of when large numbers of Russian forces crossed the border last year. Both sides, of course, are pointing the finger at the other as being responsible for this upsurge, but it's fairly clear from our reporting that it's been the rebel forces, the Russian-backed rebels, that have been responsible for the violations primarily. Taking a step back, Ukraine has been doing better since the Minsk Accord signed in February. But that peace agreement may itself be part of the problem. The government is starting to get some reforms through, had been showing signs of, in a sense, being able to contain the situation in, in eastern Ukraine uh, somewhat. So it certainly doesn't want violence to break out again. But the problem is the Minsk deal was not a good deal for Ukraine on paper. And it was a good deal for Russia because it gave Russia what it wanted, which in essence would force Ukraine to 
reintegrate the eastern districts, but with a considerable degree of autonomy, which would allow Russia to use them as levers of, of Russian influence within Ukraine, while Ukraine would still, in effect, have to fund them while having very little, if any, political control over them. In the meantime, Ukraine also has to sort out its debt, part of which is owed, of course, to Russia, and which is due to be repaid in December. Here's Elaine Moore, our capital markets correspondent. That's $3 billion that Ukraine actually owes to Russia. Russia is Ukraine's second largest creditor. And at the moment, the question about that is Ukraine considers that debt to be the same as any other private creditor debt, and it wants to include it in the debt operation. Russia considers that debt to be official state debt. The International Monetary Fund won't lend to countries that are behind on payments to other governments. So if Ukraine doesn't pay that money, and if the IMF considers that state debt, that could endanger the IMF's rescue plan for Ukraine. If you can sort that problem out, I'm sure Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande would love to hear from you. Now. That's all for this week. Our producers were Feline Reyes and Fiona Simon. Next week, my colleague Tom Burgess will be hosting this podcast with another selection of clips. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, you might also like to try our Alpha Chat podcast presented by me, Cardiff Garcia, where each week FT writers, bloggers, and their invited guests will have a wonky, funny, and occasionally even irreverent chat about topics related to the financial markets and economics. Check it out at ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.